Recovery Elevator, episode 203. If you can speak your truth and speak your shame and there's empathy involved, that shame can't last. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Jeff. He's been sober since December 4th, 2016. He lives in Monument, Colorado, and I had the pleasure of meeting Jeff in person this summer at a Third Eye Blind concert. Guys, I got a bunch to cover before we get started, so bear with me. First one is we launched our third private unsearchable Facebook group called Cafe RE Go on January 1st. We're seven days into it. The conversation and dialogue has already taken place. If you want to join this group, which all the new signups for just the month of January of 2019 will be added into this group, be sure to use the promo code 2019 to waive 75% off your setup fee for the first month. After that, just $19 a month. Again, go to recoveryelevator.com, find Cafe RE, get you into this private accountability group, and launch your sobriety now. The inaccurate tracking of the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker app has been fixed. If you deleted the app because it didn't accurately track your time, which I don't blame you, I would have done the same, that problem has now been fixed. You can get an iTunes, Android, free app, tracks your time, money saved, calories, etc. Alcohol is shit. Before we get started, I got one more thing to cover, and that is Blinkist. I know we all have goals to hit, whether it's eating healthier or exercising more, and at some time, it can be hard to achieve all of these while struggling with other aspects of life. There is an app I highly recommend for you to hit your goals a bit easier. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them into just 15 minutes. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of the books quickly without reading the entire book. With an audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish four books a day while you're on the go. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. I like Blinkist because I was able to get the main points from Brene Brown's Dare to Lead in just 15 minutes. Same thing with Eat, Move, Sleep by Tim Rath. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash elevator to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash elevator. Start your seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com forward slash elevator. Okay, let's get started. Have you ever seen a movie where you're like, no way, that could never happen? Perhaps when Rambo takes on an entire army in Rambo 3. Maybe the final chase scene in Mad Max. Perhaps all of Sharknado. Well, I got the idea for this episode in an article titled License to Swill, published in the Medical Journal of Australia that a buddy sent to me last week. It takes a look at the James Bond movies. Sure, the action is barely believable, which is somewhat expected, but there's something else in these Bond films that doesn't add up. That would be the drinking patterns of James Bond. Let's explore this further. Academics from the University of Otago analyzed the 24 James Bond films and concluded that James Bond has a serious alcohol use disorder. Major case of enhanced dopamine receptors is a full-blown functioning alcoholic, and he's operating on borrowed time. They also concluded that James Bond should seriously seek professional help. The researchers said, There is a strong and consistent evidence that James Bond has a chronic alcohol consumption problem at the severe end of the spectrum. They also said, His workplace, MI6, needs to become a more responsible employer and to refer him to support services and to change its own workplace drinking culture. 
That culture currently is drink copious amounts of alcohol and start firing guns from the hip. In their analysis of the Bond films, the researchers, and I love how I'm using the word researchers, found that a drink reached Bond's lips 109 times during his six-decade on-screen career and an average of 4.5 times per film. While Bond tended to mix his liquor, including beer and champagne, it is the martini for which the tuxedo-wearing Brit is best known for. The researchers said 007's biggest binge involved the consumption of a six Vesper martinis on a plane in the film Quantum of Solace. Invented by Bond creator Ian Fleming in the book Casino Royale, the Vesper martini is made up of three measures of Gordon's gin, one measure of vodka, and a half measure of Kina Lillet. Huh, Kina Lillet. I thought I drank every alcohol on the planet. I have never heard of that. Drinking six of these Vesper martinis would equate to about 24 units of alcohol, which would leave Bond with a blood alcohol level of 0.36, well into the range that can be fatal. 0.36 and not slurring his words or passed out in the bathroom lavatory on the plane or without even a trace of vomit on his press tuxedo? Come on, Hollywood! To give the film credit, it does get some things right. The main character, Bond, almost always engages in risky behavior right after drinking. Bond drinks, starts kung fu fighting. Bond drinks, starts driving and crashing expensive cars. Bond drinks, starts gambling. Bond drinks, starts operating heavy machinery he's never even been trained to operate. Bond drinks, and he thinks he's Hussein Bolt. Bond drinks, and he starts sleeping with people who want to kill him. Most of the time, this sleeping with the enemy takes place with guns and knives in the bed. Bond drinks, and he thinks it's a good idea to handle snakes, Komodo dragons, and scorpions. Bond drinks, hey, let's mess with nuclear technology. Hollywood did get that right. Drink a lot of alcohol, do stupid shit. Bond's relationship with the bottle was stacked up against the DSM-5. This is the Diagnostical Statistical Manual, which is criteria to a set of questions that indicates the presence of an alcohol use disorder. The researchers found that Bond satisfied at least six of the ten symptoms, enough for a severe drinking problem, and possibly three more. Bond is advised to seek professional help for his drinking, including from his employer, Her Majesty's Secret Service. To start with, M should no longer offer Bond drinks in the workplace setting. Further, MI6 management needs to redefine Bond's job to reduce his stress levels. He needs more field support and a stronger team approach are needed so that his duties do not weigh as heavily upon him. He can't do this alone. If you can't tell already, I added that last snippet in there. And guys, I'm also personally worried about Bond. I love these movies. So I sent an email to the movie producers proposing a sober sidekick, El Pablo, played by myself, who has quick speed bursts like a cheetah, as we discussed in last week's podcast, and I can help Bond navigate these extremely stressful situations without a drink. Though I don't think a 10-minute scene with Bond and El Pablo meditating would be a blockbuster movie, it sure would be better for Bond's health. To conclude, just like we don't necessarily believe all the crazy action scenes we see on TV, it's prudent to keep in mind that most TV and film doesn't accurately portray what alcohol does to our bodies. Occasionally, you get a movie like Leaving Las Vegas that drives the point of how dangerous alcohol can be, but most of them not so much. I don't foresee Hollywood making any changes soon, but we can have more awareness while watching TV and movies. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. That was fun to make. And before we get to Jeff, I want to talk to you guys about Care Of. This year, make health and wellness a top priority with the help of Care Of's monthly subscription vitamin service. Whether you're focused on glowing skin, boosting your energy levels, getting more sleep, or generally being healthy. Do some good for your health in 2019. Care Of makes it easy to stick to your health-related resolutions. Care Of's fun online quiz asks you about your diet, 
health goals, and lifestyle choices, and takes only five minutes to find out your personal, scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. 90% of people fall short of FDA-recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. Find out where you're lacking with Care-of's online quiz and get back on track to reaching your health goals. Guys, proper nutrition is key to recovery. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care-of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. A portion of every sale goes towards the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. For 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code ELEVATOR. Again, that's go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code ELEVATOR. And now let's hear from Jeff. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing good, Paul. How are you doing? Jeff, I'm doing great. Let's get right into this, Jeff. How long have you been sober? I've been sober just over two years. December 4th was my, 2016 was my uh, sobriety date. Nice job. A lot has changed since episode 104 when I had you on the podcast back then. You had 55 days of sobriety. And listeners, I love having previous guests back on the podcast. I want to see where are they now. And Jeff, you've got some great things going on in sobriety. I cannot wait to give listeners an update and, and just touch base on what you're working on now in, in your recovery journey and things like that. But before we get any further, Jeff, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, I'm 43 years old. I live in a suburb of Denver, Colorado. So um, I'm married. We are empty nesters. My son has traversed his first semester of college um, at university. So um, we're empty nesters. We're trying to figure out what we like for fun. Um, we definitely like to binge watch Netflix and hang out, my wife and I. And we do boating in the summer, uh, wakeboarding at Lake Powell. And other than that, I've been doing a lot of riding in recovery for sure. A lot of riding. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff, for getting us up to speed and, and give listeners a little background about your drinking. Again, listeners, for the full background, go back to episode 104. But Jeff is still going to give us a summary of, of his drinking habits, how much he drank, did he ever attempt to moderate, and things like that. Take it from here. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, try and give the Cliff Notes version. I, I actually didn't drink in my 20s for the most part. Um, I got married at age 18, so I started adulting right away. Uh, during the day, I was a genetic researcher, and during the afternoons, I was a youth pastor, and in the evenings, I would run my own commercial cleaning business. So... I was incredibly busy in my 20s, so doing a lot of adulting, and as I kind of got towards the end of my 20s and got a little bit of a prominence and affluence in the community, I kind of noticed that the currency within the community was, you know, lawn chairs and hanging out in people's man caves and drinking. So, you know, I just, I just kind of adapted and, you know, built relationships within the community, and that surrounded a lot of drinking. So, you know, I had some habitual drinking in, in, you know, that was progressing towards the end of my 20s, into my early 30s, but it really, it wasn't too bad. Within about 15 years of marriage, right at around the 15-year mark, I had a pretty significant uh, betrayal from my spouse that where we just had to wrap it up, call it quit. So it went from habitual drinking around age 34 to just a downward spiral. So you know, what was habit forming turned into just dependence. And within a two-year period, I had, see, I'd gotten into a car accident. I had gotten a DUI that was pretty significant. And then I missed being an officiant at a friend's wedding. So I had about a six-month spiral where, 
you know, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So, and those three things you know, happen in six months. That those happen the, the the last six months, and so those those uh, events probably should have been my bottom. However, you know, mid in in fact, July fourth of two thousand eleven, where I think you know my story, if it was a computer, it would have just been the blue screen of death. You know, I was just I was in an awful way. I was about ready to get my license, uh, driver's license punched, and I met I met my current wife Tammy on July fourth at a barbecue, and you know there was nothing sexy about you know saying hey I'm about to lose my license and probably go to jail. You know you just I I couldn't sugarcoat or make I couldn't posture my ego couldn't posture the way it had brought me up in my twenties and thirties and being prominent. There was nothing prominent about the difficulties that I had put myself through in using alcohol. And at the same time, meeting her was like a fresh start. She didn't mm. know my past. The court system gave me a good reboot on allowing me to not drink. So if the courts tell you, you know, through whether it's, you know, urine tests or jail or, you know, it was forced sobriety. So in a lot of ways, I got to hit reset on my relationship. I got to hit reset on my drinking. And as dark as it was going down to that six-month period, I um, was able to start drinking normally again, if that makes sense. Jeff, you were able to do a reboot with your drinking with the aid of the court systems. You're also able to do a reboot with your relationship. Now you're at age 36. There were three prominent red flags, the DUI, the crash, and what was the, there was a third one in there. But you're, you're, so you're 36, yeah, I mean, and you mentioned I'm, at 41, yeah. you stopped drinking. What happened during that five-year period? You said you did some moderate drinking, but the obsession was still there. Expand a little bit more upon that. Yeah, the obsession was still there. I um, I always remember that somewhere in the 20s of your podcast, you had a gentleman that mentioned as to whether drinking was a problem. And he said that, you know, if you were to ask him about his bank account or his child's grades, I would say that, you know, hey, I might have roughly a thousand you know, dollars in my bank account, or my, my child gets, you know, mostly A's or mostly C's. But if you asked me what was in my refrigerator, I would tell you that, you know, there was about three shots of vodka in a 750 mil bottle. There were three beers and one shot of Jägermeister in the cupboard. And I could tell you exactly, the mental obsession was, I could tell you exactly what, what I had to get me where I needed to go. And I could tell you that on a daily basis. So it was really you know, me telling you that I have an obsession because I'm calculating at every turn what I'm going to need to get by on a daily basis. So even though my drinking looked normal after all the dire consequences, I was able to hit reset through the court systems. I was able to hit reset through a relationship, but I still had a mental obsession on a daily basis as to whether I was or was not going to have alcohol. Mm -hmm. And that happened. I mean, you know, you can find that sweet spot and that sweet spot can last you quite a while. So even though I had dire consequences in the past, I really, with my new relationship and my new life, and I was perfectly happy, I also still implemented alcohol within that and stayed in that sweet spot for another you know, five years. Yeah, during those five years, did you put rules in a place? Did you only drink beer? And talk to us about the end of the five years when you realized the gig was up. Yeah, we definitely put rules in the place. You know, we would we would say we're only going to spend so much on alcohol a week, you know, so you try that and then, you you know, everything that you put into place. I switched from wine or to wine 
from hard alcohol or only beer, um, only on the weekend. So we definitely tried to put rules into place, but they seem to get, get broken all the time. Towards the end, I mean, my real, you know, moments of clarity were, I would say that everything was great. Tammy's relationship was great. My son was highly functional in school, getting good grades. Um, we had trimmed back our bills, which of course gave us more time for, you know, leisure and drinking and everything couldn't have been more perfect. And Tammy's daughter, she has adult children. Her daughter had had a pretty uh, severe stroke. Hmm. And so we spent about three days in the hospital and it looked like she was in the clear. And when those three days were up, Tammy had stayed back at the hospital and I had went to go home to take care of the animals and I was going to spend the evening at home. I remember having this feeling on the way up back to our house. I had this feeling of, oh, good, tonight I can drink. And in that moment, I mean, that was, I guess you would call it, and to me it was a, it was an aha moment or a moment of clarity where I was like, I was so disgusted with myself. Like, here she is in the hospital with her daughter. And I'm thinking, oh, good, I can finally get away from that, you know, stress, chaos anxiety and, and escape, you know, and, and it, it, there wasn't anything else going on, on in our life that was horrific up until this point. And yet I found a way to make it about me. So that selfishness kind of stung. And then, you know, in turn, um, her daughter turned around and had another, another stroke and it turned me right around from going from the house, you know, and turned right back around going to the hospital. And, you know, I told her, you know, a couple of days after we're out there sitting on the lawn of the hospital and I'm like, you know, I got to make some changes. I just don't like, I don't want to put myself in a situation where I'm, you know, in the hospital and people are looking over me. And, you know, for some reason, it just all came together in that moment. So I definitely, that's the first time. And I didn't have to in that five year period, really, you know, being self-employed and making your own schedule. I didn't really have to have a lot of regulation. But I started to try and regulate at that point for just a couple months. And it was really clear that once I tried to just kind of white knuckle it, that I had one weekend bender where it was, you know, obviously right around uh, December, you know, 2nd through the 4th. I had a weekend bender where I was just rolling over the next day. And I don't think I ever really got sober. I just maintained that buzz through a whole weekend. And on Sunday, by the time I went out to go take care of some of my work and business duties, I felt so pickled and soggy in my brain that I considered driving myself to the police station and having them test me as to whether I was still hot. And that moment, that was the oh shit moment for me that I said, what you're doing in your mind is you're asking somebody to help you control your drinking. And so I had moments five years prior where you know, the, the, the big E on the I chart was there, you know, like you're, you, you're a problem drinker, you know, you've had the crash, you've had the DUI. But to me, that reality of thinking of driving myself to the police station to have them test me was so counterproductive. And yet to me in the moment, it was the answer of having, ask, reaching out for help and asking somebody to help me control it. Jeff, there's a lot to comment on there. And first off, I'm going to go back to that analogy that I remember in the first 20 episodes of this podcast was almost four years ago. Somebody said, you're yeah. right. I don't know how much money is in my bank account to the T. I don't know exact details of these things, but I can tell you exactly how many beers and where they're located in my fridge. 
that I have not thought about that for a long time. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And that's, that's the obsession. Yeah. That, I definitely remember that. Yeah. And I wrote that down. I'll be commenting on that in future episodes. Um, that's, that describes the obsession perfectly. And I love doing the podcast chatting with interviewees because every story is different. <laughs> you had yeah. the, the, uh, you know, the traumatic events, there were three in a six month period for something like, like five years before you got sober, but the writing was still on the wall, even though you seem to have it all buttoned up. Um, there was a moment you're driving home to the hospital, you're going home to get a drink. You're realizing, Oh my gosh, this is selfish. The conscious mind also presented a solution. Let's go to the police station and get tested. Uh, I, I find it fascinating because you, your body was telling you what to do. You, your body was giving you the signs. The writing was on the wall. Not everybody can read the writing on the wall, but you did it. That is, that's awesome. And and that right. was over two years ago. How does that feel? Right. It felt amazing. I mean, I really, you know, that night or that day, I didn't drive myself to the police station, but I thought to myself, you know, tonight's it. You know, after tonight, I'm not drinking anymore, you know. <laughs> I, I, if I get home, I'm going to put an end to this. And, and I did, I, I got home. I still had some, some vodka at the house. I remember, you know, saying tomorrow I'm going to open up and be vulnerable and tell my wife, you know, to the extent that I struggle inside the best way that I can explain it. So, you know, I, I took one last shot that night when I got home just to kind of, um, quell the, the shakes and the nerves and, you know, like we do. And, um, I cast the bottle and I stared at it and I said, I'm done. And I didn't pour it out. I left it on the counter and I, I stared at it subsequently every day afterwards. You know, just, I don't know if I was a glutton for punishment or what, but for me, it was some sort of a symbolic uh, gesture that alcohol is always going to be around. It's always going to be at every party. It's going to be on the corner of every, you know, strip mall. It's going to be in my house. For me, it was like, it's going to be there. I need to be able to deal with this. And so, you know, the next day, you know, my first tool was just being open and honest and vulnerable. And, you know, for me, I'm someone who tries to have every area of life, life on lock, you know, whether it's business or parenting or, you know, my friendships. And I think I have everything on lock and I just had to be able to be vulnerable enough to tell my wife, you know, this is one thing I can't seem to figure out. And Jeff, talk to us um, more then, about I, that conversation with your wife. How did that go? It was amazing. I mean, we sat out on the front porch. We're overlooking trees. You know, I did a little bit of, you know, I don't even know if it was crying. I'm just like, almost like someone who's just punched up, you know, <laughs> just like so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just was like, I'm going to need your help. I don't want to do this anymore. This is the extent. And I was, you know, that's one thing I always try prided myself on that was the game changer between my wife and I versus my past relationship is that I was always going to be open and honest with her no matter what. And that was a great thing that she caught me in the, that we met in the middle of my struggle because I could let her know and be open with who I was because I was already in trouble. Right. So my thing was, is that I was always going to be open and honest, but I found myself, you know, starting to pour a heavier drink at night that I was for her or you know you start getting sneaky and I'm like you know I'm starting to be sneaky I'm starting to not um, and so when I opened up to her I mean we we're just like all right let's do it and you know she came alongside me we put all the the you know she she stayed sober with me although she's very much a normal drinker she she rode the sobriety wave with me to 
to help me get to a certain place. And um, it, that was my number one tool. Having that, she was a built-in sponsor, really. I mean, I could tell her any sort of struggle or any sort of trigger that was going on that, you know, she, she fell in line with. She was extremely empathetic, for sure. So, Jeff, let me ask you a question. I, I see this a lot in the groups. It's difficult to be on the same page as your spouse, um, which isn't always possible. But how important is it to have your spouse or significant other there with you, or at least to get them on the same page temporarily and ideally to have them on the same team? It was super important for me because there was moments where I wanted to crack, and I was fishing for ways to crack, um, and she wouldn't let me, you know? So I'd start priming her, like, you know, we got close to Christmas time, and it's about time to wrap presents, and we hadn't ever wrapped presents without having drinks and, you know, music in the background. I'm like, this is going to be miserable without drinking, you know? It's like, and, you know, I've been good for this. And she was like, you know what? We're just going to find another way to do it. It might not be as fun, but we're going to get it done, you know? So I think, you know, even if another spouse drinks, they have to have empathy, you know, because a person who struggles with alcohol already has enough shame, you know? The, the shame is the thing that, that kills them the most. And so when somebody was shamed, you know, speaks their truth and opens up, you need somebody who's empathetic to receive it, whether they understand it or not. And if you can speak your truth and speak your shame and there's empathy involved, that shame can't last. You know, when you divulge a secret, you feel that weight lift from your shoulder. You know how that feels. It's because shame has no way to hide. And hiding is what gets us to be, you know, problem drinkers, I think, to begin with. I agree 100%. And vulnerability eventually turns into empowering. Um, yeah, I, I love that you said that. Uh, and let's break this down with over two years. What was it like in the first six months and then the first year after that? And then what it's been like the tail end of the, you know, the last from 18 to 24 months? Break it into like a couple categories. And what are the differences in sobriety? Sure. So the differences, I mean, you know, you have a death grip in the first 90 days. You know, everything's new. I spent the first 30 days listening to 90 of your podcasts. So my goal was to be, I think at that time you had about 87 podcasts out when I started. And my goal was to get 90 podcasts in within the first 30 days. So what I wanted to do was retrain, start re, retraining my brain. Anytime that I spent drinking, I wanted to spend time putting good information inside my head. So that was stories, that was stats, that was science. You, def you definitely molested my ear holes for the first 30 to, oh, to 90 days. Thanks so, for listening, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> kind of creepy, but, you know, good information. So, you know, I spent the first six months just learning from you guys, from people, from people's stories. I learned the information from the people in Cafe RE that once I felt like I had a little distance from the physical effects of alcohol, you know, as, as far as them being huge triggers, I still needed daily advice. And so Cafe RE, just every time there was a new scenario that came up, the support community in Cafe RE and online Facebook groups were, was tremendous. You know, I, I got into a pinch a couple of times and I got bailed out almost immediately with good sound advice because when your lizard brain calls, you know, and says you need this to survive, you've got five to 10 other people online almost immediately telling you why you don't. And so that, that was key for me. The first six months was in, in, I would say a full year was doing a lot of, you, 
it was a science experiment. You're, you're testing whether you do or do not like things or you just like them because you are a drinker. So you have to go to that first concert and you have to wonder, is that concert going to be enjoyable or was it just enjoyable because I was having drinks? And I found out it was difficult the first time, but it was even better the second time, even better the third time, and then even more empowering and, you know, the fifth, the fourth and fifth time. So it, it's a lot of science. You know, your, your body is the experiment and you're trying to figure out what you like. What I really found in the, the six to nine month mark is that my brain started coming online. And I would have never guessed. I guess yeah, I spent so much time drinking that I didn't realize that my creativity was going to start firing in a way that I thought was only available when I shut the world out and had a drink to warm myself, if that makes sense. So, you know, for writing, like, for instance, in writing, if you were like, you thought you thought you were like Hemingway or Hunter S. Thompson, where if you, you pulled yourself, poured yourself a highball and, you know, had a cigarette, you could write better. And that's, and I thought, you know, writing just might be a, a casualty of war. If I have to get sober and I never write again, so be it. Right. But what I found is that at that nine, nine month mark into a year and a half, my creative flow was actually better. The synapses were firing. I was finding joy and warmth in writing. And I would have never guessed that. So sobriety has also been a surprise. You know, I thought at one point that if I quit drinking, I was doing it for my health and I was doing it for everybody else. But I was going to be some sort of like sacrificial martyr that was having a less enjoyable life and in lieu of maybe not dying 15 years early. But what I found is that everything that I do and I enjoy doing, I enjoy doing it sober, even, even more so, you know, remembering it, being totally fully present versus, you know, chasing the next drink on top of whatever activity you're doing. Jeff, you mentioned the first 90 days. It feels like you're on death grips. I think that's what you said. I, 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 I saw the world as just being loud. Like everything was turned up driving things would happen and be like, Whoa, like that, that happened. The peaks and valleys were so high. And then eventually, like you said, the physically you're going to come out of it. And this can take, it can take months and the post acute withdrawal symptoms, what I like to call healing symptoms is where body comes back online. And it's astounding, like you said, that month six and month nine, you, the synapses started firing again. He became more creative. Um, I actually experienced this even a little bit later, about a year and a half in, in his sobriety. I started getting more creative. In fact, with one of my businesses, I put on a fake wedding. It was like, like two years into sobriety, a total fake wedding. I sold over 150 tickets. It was for a fundraiser. And I put on the whole thing, and it was incredible. And it was just fun. I was like a director, <laughs> you know, a fake wedding at a ballroom, rented space and everything for a fundraiser. And I'm creative again. It's, it's, it's magical. Um, and so yeah. what, what, uh, what was the second year of sobriety like for you? Now the second year, I actually found that in my business, I was a lot more available the first year I was just available. And so my business started taking off in a way that I wasn't asking it to. So in my second year, I was starting to, it's like having a garden that flourishes. You're like, oh, I guess I have to go harvest that fruit, you know? So the second year was, a, you know, you never stop growing. So for me, I had to ask myself questions like, do I want to be this busy? Can I schedule some leisure time? You know, so life keeps happening. 
And for the second year, I started seeing just a growth aspect that I had to decide. I could have went, oh, yeah, this is a, a, a wonderful thing. But I really had to ask, okay, what is my leisure time worth? What is my writing time worth? And so, you know, the second year, I would also say, so there's that. I mean, life keeps happening. And it's, you know, you feel a lot more free um, to be fluid in and out of responsibility and leisure. But another thing is that you're doing a second round of the things that were really difficult the year before. So we take family trips to Lake Powell. I own a houseboat out at Lake Powell. And we take family trips. And the first year I went, it was not fun. I was isolated with you know, 20 family members. They were all drinking. I remember sticking my hand in the cooler for the first time and I had that fight or flight, you know, response, but it was actually a freeze response. Like, oh my God, I'm going to stick my hand in this cooler 300 more times, you know, in a one week period. And it was really, really difficult. At some points I had to retreat down to my cabin and just read because the tomfoolery of whatever was going up on the deck, you know, is just too much to bear. And so in the second year, you get a second stab at, at doing the things you did a year prior. And they become more enjoyable. And you, you start realizing, oh, I can really, really enjoy this life. And instead of feeling like you're some sort of um, a sacrificial lamb, you start feeling more punk rock, like a little bit more empowered. You know, where your answer to people saying, hey, do you want to drink? is like, no, I don't need it. You know, and it puts it back on them to where they have to go, oh, do I need this? Yeah, they probably do. <laughs> you know, so the second year is just, it's way more empowering than, than the first year. You start hitting your stride and feeling more comfortable in your own skin. And you start liking the choices that you've made and you start liking yourself more as a person. Jeff, I love how you said you get a second go at the things you did before. You get a second Fourth of July. You get a second Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. It's going to be your second sober birthday. I love how you said yeah, that. Yeah. In a couple months before I got sober, I had a hellish time in Lake Powell. I remember being in the houseboat bathroom. I shut the door, looked outside, and said, Dear God, please help. I was drinking on that trip, yet everybody thought I was sober. And to keep that right. charade up the entire trip was the most exhausting thing I ever did. Eventually... The last morning, I woke my parents up at 6 a.m. and burned the ships. And then later in the day, at the bottom of the boat, on um, the speedboat with my brother, I burned the ships again. And that's when things really started to change for me. But I understand being yeah. up in that lake with isolation down a canyon, it can be scary. But the second, the third time that I've been back to Lake Powell in sobriety, it's a completely different narrative. And Jeff, with two years of sobriety, what's, what's probably the most challenging thing that you've encountered? You know, actually, that Lake Powell trip, that first one, was easily the most challenging. I mean, you're you're sequestering yourself on a boat. Everybody's drunk, and once they're not everybody, but you know, I mean, they're they're doing their thing. They're partying on vacation, as it was probably you know prescribed. But you know, you're white. You're you might be awake at two in the morning, and the the countertops are littered with you know, booze, and you can think to yourself, I can just have one. Nobody will know. Mm -hmm. Why do they get to have all the fun? And it's not like you can just run away and you're stuck, you know? So that first lake trip was easily the most difficult thing that I overcame. And it was probably a turn the corner. I actually had a couple of things built in where I told you guys that I would check in daily. So every day I would climb up a cliff to where I would get enough cell, uh, cell reception and I would try and check in with you guys and let you know, you know, day one, I'm okay. Day two, I'm okay, you know. 
So uh, definitely the hardest thing I've done. I remember those check-ins. And, and how did you feel when you yeah. left Lake Powell making it through sober? I felt incredible. I mean, I felt like I felt like I did the impossible, you know, because if you say you get through your first week of sobriety or your first 30 days, you still have that lingering like, man, this is still really fragile. You know, it's shaky. I felt, you know, maybe seven months in to sobriety and and it, it really felt real. Like I can do anything now, you know. When the feeling of I can do anything I put my mind to comes back in sobriety, it's incredible. It's better than any drug, any alcohol I've ever tasted. And that return to me probably eight months into sobriety is that feeling you just said right there is, wait a second, yeah. I can do anything I want. I'm back. <laughs> Baby, I am yeah. back. It's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. yeah. And what's on your bucket list in sobriety, Jeff? I'm working on a book right now. I've got, um, I, you know what I found in Cafe RE is that a lot of people, you know, they're there all the time parking in little um, nuggets of wisdom. And I just have a long, a more long form uh, essay style of writing. So in Cafe RE, every once in a while, I'll send off, you know, it might be a, a one or two month work in progress, but I'll send off an essay of some sort. And I've really found that I enjoy that creative process. So I've been working on a book it has a tinges of my memoir in it, but it's a little bit more geared towards a single day in recovery and the contrast of how great that day was and compartmentalizing that day into flashbacks of my drinking time to try and find the differences there. And so I've been working on a book a little bit. So when I do get some leisure time, I like to play around with that. I'm about seven chapters in. Um, and then, you know, my bucket list in sobriety is uh, really, I want to learn my next tool is how to schedule unproductive time. I'm always like a, I'm hyper go, go, go all the time. And I find value in being productive. And sometimes I think I need to try and figure out a way to schedule uh, produ non-productive leisure time that, you know, you're, you're self-employed. So sometimes you're going, going, going all the time. And then when you do get that break in leisure, you didn't even realize it because you didn't plan for it. And then you feel like you wasted it. So um, that's just one more tool that I want to add to my toolbox is learning how to schedule leisure time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add on that, on that tool is uh, getting good at uh, the leisure time. Because I reached a point, you know, when I first got sober, I, I thought I could take on the world. Like I mentioned, welcome back. I'm back. <laughs> yeah. It kind of backfired. Uh, I dedicated all my free time and resources, these entrepreneurial endeavors that I had going on. And, and the free time, there was just, there was no free time. And so if somebody posted in the, in the group today, where were you at one year ago? And my response was, I could barely sit on a park bench for five minutes, let alone 10, 10 minutes would have been probably impossible. And a year later, a couple days ago, we had a warm day. It's up here. It's snowy, but we had a warm day, like 45 degrees. And I sat on a park bench for an hour long enough to watch a small wiener dog sprint down the hill and then slide down the remainder of the sledding hill on his stomach. It was incredible. And I would have missed that moment. And I'm starting to realize it's all the little things in life that add up to be the great things. It's incredible. Right, right. Yeah, and so I was not good at relaxing, and this is something I'm still working on. And and you know, apart from you, know, you and and to expand on your bucket list, Jeff, what what are you working on personally right now? Um, you know, I 
I'm really, I'm still just learning. I, my, my journey is one that I haven't been in formal recovery groups. So I feel like sometimes it's like a renegade recovery type where my stubbornness likes to figure it out without having it said to me. But it doesn't mean I'm not out chasing the reasons and the whys of who I am and how I operate. So, you know, long-term bucket list is to still try and uncover some of those uncomfortable areas of, of who I am. And I take those in, you know, it, it's a little bit more organic than having it fed in a 12-step program of some sort. But at the same time, as long as, I, again, I, if I use that first tool of honesty and vulnerability, if I've got a friend in Cafe RE or one of my online groups who, you know, has to apologize to their kid, I have to be open and honest and vulnerable and, and say, hey, what, where do I have to work in that area? So, you know, for me, it's just working on right now is I still I'm, I'm okay with trying to uncover and work on myself in terms of, you know, being the best uh, sober person I can be. And Jeff, what are your thoughts on relapse? Ah, that's a good question. I'm all for it. <laughs> like, and what I mean by that is like, I have, a, this is a science experiment, you know, like I, for me, I thought I'm going to get sober. And, and the question in that experiment in the, in the scientific method was, what would it look like if I got a certain amount of time away from alcohol? What, what would it look like? What would I feel like? So if it didn't feel good, I could always go back, right? I could always go back to alcohol. So I always, that was always my mindset. I can always relapse or I can always go back to it if I want to. But the results of the experiment have been, I don't want to. Like, I feel, I feel like I'm doing this thing right in the sense that I feel better. I feel more empowered. And so I can actually go back to alcohol if I want to. And I'm open to relapse. But when it's actually presented to me, I don't want to lose the freedom that I have. And I've projected this way out. Like I've, I've got a plan at 70 to just spend my last 10 years letting it ride. And then I have a friend in Cafe RE who ends up being 70 year, year, years old. And she tried that. Like she, she was 28 years sober. And then she had 18 months where she was back on the bottle mm -hmm. and she was miserable. And I'm like, she totally spoiled my plan for being 70 years old and, <laughs> you know, just letting it ride. So you know, I keep looking at that. If this is the experiment, if the experiment is how do you feel without it? How is life without it? And it doesn't mean that life's challenges aren't going to come your way, but how you process those challenges, how you're fully, you know, embedded in being a person who can solve those challenges without trying to escape them. I'm up for relapse, but I don't want the consequences of them. I don't want to feel the way it's going to feel, and I don't want anything to look like it looked like prior to, to me quitting. Yeah, I like how you use the analogy experiment. And the more that I think about it, there's like there's like hundreds of smaller experiments in recovery and sobriety, the big one being life without alcohol. But like you mentioned earlier, if I want to try uh, you know, skateboarding again, that's an experiment. Get a skateboard, go try it. Hmm, didn't like it. Next up. Or you might love it. I found in sobriety I absolutely love trail running with my dog. Before, I didn't really like running A, but then B, running the mountains uphill, that doesn't sound like any fun. I freaking love it. Right. I love it. I had no idea. Yeah. Never found that out. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Jeff, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am. 
All right, Jeff. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? I, the worst, the worst memory from drinking was not officiating my friend's wedding. When I was at the tail end of that six month process, I, I literally was trying to prepare their wedding and I was running off some old notes and I just, I didn't love myself. I didn't believe in love. I was at the tail end of that divorce spiral. And I literally thought about turning the car on in my garage and um, mm. just canceled myself out. And Jeff, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Just one. It is literally one day at a time. I enjoy my life. I'm excited. I'm excited for what each day brings. And um, it's one day at a time. I'm enjoying each day of it for real. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? Uh, recovery Elevator, for sure. And Cafe RE and my online Facebook groups are just, you know, they're like sometimes going to the bar without all, you get all the bar talk and you get all the, the fun and nonsense and mushiness and it's without the alcohol. It's true, true friendships, for real. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've received is the quotation from a friend. My friend Allison sent me a quotation one time that said, and remember, you don't drink anymore. And for some reason, the adamantness of that statement really uh, sufficed my punk rock nature. Like, I don't drink anymore. And that's the way I got through that particular day because I was having such a struggle. And just be adamant about it. Have some grit. This takes grit. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? Wow, I have so much to say. Um, just keep at it. It, it, it. I would say the same thing. It takes grit. You know, a lot of people want to think their way into, you know, not drinking. And they want the circumstances to be right. It's never going to be the right time. You need to act your way into changing your thinking. You need to take it one day at a time and act your way into it. And pretty soon, with a little bit of time, it'll start to click. Yeah, pretty tough to think your way into sobriety. But you re you'll reach a tipping yeah. point if you act your way. I love it. Um, there's there's yeah. a couple more things I want to cover before we, we finish here. Number one, have you been to a 12-step meeting? Have you ever been to AA? Um, not on my own power. Gotcha. <laughs> Actually, I was forced to go, um, go uh, court-ordered AA. And um, I'm not opposed to it. I... I have fun in community. I have fun in jail. I love community and I love the 12 step um, ethos. And I get a lot from that, but just with technology and my, my schedule being erratic all the time, there's no excuse. The excuse is, is that with technology, I get a lot of that same wisdom without having to formulate my schedule. So um, I'm not opposed to 12 step at all. I think it's probably brilliant. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I just get a lot of emails from listeners saying, I need to quit drinking. I don't like AA, this and that. For number one, get over not liking AA. You can go to a meeting. But number two, with you, Jeff, it is possible to go years at a time with not going to AA. So there's a lot of different pathways. Yeah. And, and before we hear your own customized, you might be an alcoholic. If line Jeff, I got to say thank you, buddy. You threw an invite to me to go see one of the best bands of all time, Third Eye Blind. I think it was July 26th. And uh, yeah, I flew to Denver, Colorado, met you, your wife, a couple other members from Cafe RE. We went to Third Eye Blind live. It was one of my, I'll say, proudest moments, but it was when they play that opening song, man, there was just like energy flowing through my body. It was, it was neat. So thank you very much for organizing that, Jeff. You're welcome. That was so much fun. And I kept thinking um, after we went there, I'm like, we're going to be in the golden age of 
our favorite bands, instead of pay, paying like $75 to see them at Red Rock, they're going to be at like Bronco Billy's Side Road Casino, <laughs> and we're going to be able to see our favorite bands for like 10 bucks. We're almost approaching awesome. that moment with Third Eye Blind, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, we are. But when that song came on, their opening song, like you said, getting sober, you got to have grit. There was a lot of muck. It was not easy, but it was all worth it for just that yeah. moment. So thank you, Jeff. And Yeah, you're welcome. That yeah, was fun. It was. And before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. Okay, it's a full sentence. So you might be an alcoholic if you stash shooters in your friend's son's coat before going into a football game because he's less likely to be searched than you are. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, Dark. Uh, that's great. It's good. It's really good. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast, and hopefully we get you back on another year or two. That'll be perfect. Thanks, Paul. I love you guys. Charlie Sheen just hit one year of sobriety. Nice job, Charlie. I saw some before and after pics online, and Sean of the Dead, he looks great. I remember seeing pics of him in the past where it looked like he was barely hanging on for life, which perhaps he was. In January 2016, Sheen opened up to Dr. Oz about his past attempts to quit drinking. When Oz asked Sheen how many times over the years he's attempted to say no to the bottle, he joked, well, he said about 2,000. I didn't know this about Charlie, but there was actually an 11-year stretch where Charlie didn't drink or do any other drugs. Then he fell off the wagon after receiving his HIV diagnosis. Charlie recently went back on Oz and Oz Oz Charlie to choose three words to describe how he used to be and three words to describe how he is now. Sheen said before, hammered, fractured, crazy. Now, focused, sober, hopeful. Nice job, Charlie. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Uh-huh.